three days Saturday. <laughs> a lot of golf. I, I stay busy, very busy. Hello, welcome. We're going to start in the book of Acts. If you've got a Bible. And anymore, we got electronic Bibles, we got hard copy Bibles, we got all kinds of Bibles. Why don't we uh, pray to start? And we're going to start in Acts chapter, Matthew 28 and then Acts chapter 1. Lord Jesus, we do thank you. When we think about all the people that have spoke here, prayed here, read the scripture here, all the generations in this very presence of the this very place. We're humbled to be part of that community. We pray that this day would be one more, one more chapter in that history that has taken place in this very space. And that you would have for each of us today exactly what you want for us. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and be very present and to be the real teacher here today. Help us all, empower us all to be students as we learn from your word and from the church around the world. A little bit more of your plans and your heart. Heavenly Father, we do pray for the services that go on today, for our pastoral staff and all who participate as leaders, readers, choir members, all who participate in Christian ed with our children and throughout this building. We pray a, a special anointing this day, and as in some ways we get started in this fall, we pray that this would be a significant time for this church, for each and every member here and those that may become members of it. So Heavenly Father, we pray all these things for your glory and the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of your Holy Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Well, we're going to talk a little bit these couple weeks uh, about what's going on in the world and the church. And I am particularly happy to tell you that next week, the group that I work with, which is Church Sports and Recreation Ministers, international group that helps churches do their outreach and discipleship through the medium of sport, we're going to have our international director here and he is coming, he's in between trips to Nepal, and he's, he's, been, he's been in over 70 countries, and he has a very good sense of what's happening with the church worldwide. Uh, the persecution that people are facing, personal stories of that, it's really something that you don't want to miss next week, because it will enlighten you as to how God is at work around the world, and yet how dire some of the situations are. If you've been following any of the refugee stuff, um, to just to let you know, in our group, we have what's called Global Network Partners. We, we have three levels. We have members. Anybody in the world can be a member. Uh, then we have Global Network Partners. These are people around the world that go through a vetting process, and they're, they're volunteers, but they, they volunteer five to ten hours a week to train people in what we do. And then we have staff people that are around the world. And one of our global network partners uh, in Burundi, we lost touch with a couple months ago because the Muslims had come in and just, he said, I'll never go back to my home, um, you know, unless there's a huge miracle. These people that we're in contact with are right on the front lines of this stuff. And so Jonathan Detweiler will be coming uh, next week to be with us. So we'll get started today on a few things.
But I, I wanted to start with, with a lot of what it is that helps us understand what we do within our group, CSRM. And also I think what this church has been about for decades and centuries, that, that we are about what we find. And if, you, and if you can turn to Matthew chapter 28, this is the first of the Gospels, and it's the last chapter in that. And it's, I'm sure, passages that you are, it's a passage that you have heard if you're not absolutely, some of you may have even memorized it. This is right after the resurrection, and Christ is giving his final words to those that had followed him for those years. And there in verse 18 it starts, now the 11 disciples, because Judas, of course, had killed himself on the tree, and there are 11 left, went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. For those just coming in, we're in Matthew chapter 28, verse uh, 17 now. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that go and make disciples is something that I think theologically is very significant. We're going to be turning over to now Luke chapter 24. If you'll go to Luke chapter 24, two books to the right as you go in your scripture. The theological importance of that is that you, you hear a lot about evangelism. And a lot of evangelism is today still based upon a 1940s or 50s model in the West that was so popularized by really great people like Billy Graham and even before that Billy Sunday and D.L. Moody and some of those evangelists and it's that you get thousands of people together and one person stands up and says give your life to Jesus and that is that there's nothing wrong with that in terms it's not sinful it's not uh, anything that that we should disparage but it has less and less of an effectiveness it's really not strategic it's not relevant it's not effective in our day and age and what Jonathan will help you understand next week if you've not heard the phrase the 1040 window, the 1040 window is that around the globe, and I, and I can't keep it straight, if, you know, is it latitude, longitude, help me with that, but it's around, yeah, all right, so it's, it's latitude, that in that 1040 window, that that is where the vast majority of people who do not follow Christ live and that's where most of the Christians are persecuted and so he is working for us to help try to plant churches in these very violent and very inhospitable areas not just from politics and prejudice but also there's some mountains and there's some uh, desert and there's all kinds of it's inhospitable in a lot of ways but this model of saying, okay, I'm going to raise my hand at an event, I'm going to go forward at an event, I'm going to fill out a card at an event, that is often seen as evangelism. What happens after that? Now, you may not be aware of this, but just a few weeks ago, there were a thousand men, it was a men's only uh, activity at the Hall of Fame, where a inductee into the Hall of Fame that year, this year, got up and gave a testimony and they had people fill out cards. They did that a year ago as well. And how many of those people today are in a church growing in their faith actually go and make disciples? 
And there's a big difference between the evangelism that, you know what, I heard something about Jesus today that I never heard before, and I, I'm kind of attracted to that. And I'm going to make a day's decision as opposed to commit myself to be a lifelong disciple. Go and make disciples starts with that initial giving our lives to Christ, responding to his love. But then it goes on. And this making disciples is what Jesus, it's his last words. Now, if we look at the 24th chapter of Luke, and we look down to the very last couple verses there, you see in verse 50, then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. We're continually in the temple blessing God. Now, the reason we read that is because we're connecting ourselves to where we're going to be today in Acts chapter 1. And you can turn over to Acts chapter 1. And you may not be totally aware, but while the author of both of these books is the Holy Spirit, the human instrument is the same man, Luke, that wrote the Gospel of Luke and then also Acts. And these things were written on papyrus and, and most, the, the larger books are very similar in size because that's, they weighed about 35 pounds, 40 pounds. They were all within a certain weight and that's about how much a person could carry over distance. And so a lot of these were, um, they're, they're of that size because of that. And Luke never planned on just writing a gospel. And he had always planned, he'd been doing this research. And research is not Googling in his day and age. Research was, I need to go find Mary, the mother of Jesus, and sit and write and take some notes. And I need to go and sit with Peter. And I need to go and sit with, and, and this is what he did over very many years. And so we don't, we can't see the, that there's this break between the gospel according to Luke and Acts. It's a continuation. And so you see then in the first chapter, he's now writing and he's writing to this Theophilus, and that's a Greek word, theos, meaning God, and philos, meaning lover, lover of God. He's writing to a person who he's probably trying not to name for some reasons, but yet he's giving him a title of honor. I know that you're somebody who loves God. And now he goes on and talks about a number of things, but let's go to verse 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the king, kingdom to Israel? All right, now, you see how this is kind of a connection? Jesus has not yet ascended. So in the first chapter of Acts, he's still talking to the, the, to the disciples. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons. And Jack, this is the chronos and the kairos. These are two different Greek words. The time is like the clock back here, and the kairos is the season. But they're both time-related, but one is to a second, and one is to a larger time. And, it, and the season sends, tends to be that, we were just talking, Pam and Dan, grandparenting. Lots of beautiful pictures we saw prior to the class. It's a season of grandparenting for you. And it's not just by the clock. It's a season. So he's saying to them that you, you do not know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And so now he, we have that ascension that we read in both Matthew and Luke. Now there's a couple of very key things here. What we call in our world of the sports ministry evangelistic disciple making, so that you just don't put your hand up and say today I like Jesus. 
but we don't also don't just try to help people get deeper in their faith. We keep that whole continuum. It's an evangelistic disciple making that we have the opportunity to do. This is assumed by all that Jesus is saying is that we as believers, we as a church need to be involved in this evangelistic disciple making. All of us are to be doing that. None of it, not all of us have to have the gift of evangelism or the gift of discipleship, but together, where God gives us the opportunity, we are all to be involved in that. Now, without going too much into a, a rabbit trail, this is part of our problem, particularly in Western Christianity, is that we have lost this absolute commitment to reach our world for Jesus. We wonder why we're having problems in our world. We've lost this. But there's something else that we've lost and that's not assumed that he says very clearly in these places. You need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Think about even in some of our rituals and and the kind of things that we do even in our own church here. We talk about the Father and the Son, but often the Holy Spirit is not even part of the songs we sing or the things that we we teach. And we're a little scared of those charismatics. I I don't want to go out there and have to put my hands up in the air. That's what you do when you start talking about the Holy Spirit, right? Well, that's pretty easy. I can raise my hand. But can I live for Jesus in an empowered way? that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. So it's assuming that this evangelistic disciple-making is part and parcel, and how we do it is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And then he actually gives a pattern that you're going to go to Jerusalem first, and then Judea and Samaria, they're kind of put together, and then to the world. How are we doing on those three things? (laughs) Not very good. We We could all learn something here, couldn't we? So the this idea of us knowing that that God wants to use us to reach the world, and then are we open to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? And then are we really trying to reach our own Jerusalem first? That would be our family, our neighborhood, our community, those people that we work with, et cetera, et cetera. And then maybe somehow through the entire world. Within CSRM, if you came in late, the group that I work with, Church Sports and Recreation Ministers, when we took a look at this, we said, what is our Jerusalem? And it was primarily North America. The culture is very similar. It's got the language. It's got a lot of similarities. And then, what's our Judea and Samaria? And then what's the world? And for us, we identified that our Judea and Samaria would be cultural and linguistic that those would be a couple of the key components to that just like they spoke the same language in Judea and Samaria they had some of the same culture so in terms of us that meant not only America but also Canada England Australia New Zealand countries that had a very similar kind of culture and we would have less cultural and linguistic barriers to go through. Well, England, linguistics, uh, Shaw was right, were two countries separated by a common language. Um, but, and you'd be interested to know, in, in my experience, that England's over there, and America's here, Canada's here, Australia's here, New Zealand are together. They're even closer than England in a lot of our language and use of words. But then also, a couple of other key countries. Liberia. Do you know that Liberia uses the American dollar as their economic base? They have the constitution that we use. 
they see themselves as little America in, in Africa. They're the only country that has voted with America every single time in the United Nations. They were the, they were the deciding vote to make Israel a nation. Who in America even knows that anymore? But Liberia. And then there's a couple of other countries within Africa that English and other kinds of similarities. So that became our Judea, our, our, our Samaria. And now we are moving to other uttermost parts of the world. I, I can hardly refrain from telling you the story about what's going on in Nepal. Jonathan will bring you a story about a man next week that the last time we met with him electronically, he had saved up enough storage in his computer battery, generating it, I believe, from solar power so that he could meet with us. And he's meeting with us and being lit by a candle. And he wants his light to shine on the rooftop of the world. Jonathan will bring you that story next week. That becomes our uttermost parts of the world that we're trying to go and help people hear about this good news of Jesus. All right, so today what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you a couple of churches that I've had a personal experience with and try to bring you into some of what's going on. And the first one, some of you have heard me talk about this before, it's, it's Egypt. And in Cairo, Egypt, there's a very special, um, very special church that's going on. And I don't know if we need to close other windows or you can see if there's some ways to maybe brighten it up a little bit. But I'm going to give you just a couple of pictures of Cairo and then some other pictures to help you understand it. And you can see that these are the kind of buildings that, that are being built. There's lots and lots. It's over 20 million people in Cairo, one of the, one of the largest cities in the world. It's obviously very Muslim in, in its orientation today. And you can see in some of these buildings that they're, they're not completed. And one of the reasons why these buildings are not completed up on the top, they haven't got the roof structure, is because if they do put the roofs on and they finish the buildings, that's when they have to pay taxes. So they leave most of their buildings undone so they don't have to pay taxes on them. You can see the kind of uh, situation with laundry hanging out and people congregating. And about every 100 yards, you'll see one of these men. Now, I'm not sure the, the most recent data, but when this picture was taken, there was uh, about, they said that the unemployment rate was 50% of Egypt was unemployed. Take away the 20% of these 20-somethings that they hired to be their military police, and it would be 70% unemployment. And about every 100 yards or so, you would see one of these with their machine guns hanging on their sides. Um, this is the culture. Now, this picture is very rare. 90% of the people that you see on the street in Cairo are men. Women are in those high-rise apartments. Now, the time that I was there, the coolest day we had was 104 degrees. That was the coolest day we had. And there's no air conditioning. And you can imagine what the third, fourth, fifth, sixth floor of those apartments are. And those women are never allowed to come out of those dresses. In fact, you see more of these women than most of the women you see that all, all you can see is their eyes. And this is the group that actually had colors on. All the rest were in black. Black, long clothes, hooded, on 104 to 115 degree days. And this is a very rare picture of, of what I experienced there. Of course, you can't go anywhere in Cairo without the Nile being part of it. And you can see that there are the buildings. You can also see the, the immense amount of pollution and the fog and the haze in the back. And this is some of the most contaminated water that you'd ever want to come by. You can see the traffic on the bridges. This was taken from our hotel. And by the way, the hotel is the Shepherd Hotel here on the Nile. 
Anybody has ever written, uh, read Oswald Chambers? My highest for his, my utmost for his highest. A great devotional. This was a man who uh, came out of Scotland and went to work for the YMCA. And part of my background being in the YMCA, I studied him. This is the hotel that he stayed in. This hotel has been there a long time. And he wrote this incredible series of devotionals that I recommend to you, daily devotionals. I would recommend it to anyone. And he gave those talks during uh, World War I to the, to the soldiers that were coming, allied forces that were coming there to Egypt. And it was really fun to connect a lot of the dots with him. But this hotel has been a British base hotel for well over a century. And it is where a number of us stayed, and I'll come to that in a little bit. Now we're traveling up to what is called the Christian Dump. You can see the mosque, and these are everywhere, and all during the day you can hear the calls to prayer, and, and it's, it is very, very Islamic. Now we're at the Christian Dump, and there's a couple things that I want you to, to see in these next couple pictures. About a mile or so before we got to the dump, our nostrils, it, it was the, the smell was so horrible, it was making a number of us sick at our stomachs. And the closer we got, the worse it got. And when we got there, we asked our, our guide and said, so this is where the Muslims make the Christians go to live on this dump? Now the dump is where they literally take all their refuge and just dump it. And, and they said, well, no, actually, it's, it's actually a pretty good place, so explain that to us. You can see that there are buildings here. On the Muslim dump, there's no buildings. It's just a dump, and it's literally hand-to-mouth that people are, are in subsistence living. But what has happened in the Christian community, and this will come clear as I show some more slides, is that because of the Christian teachings, particularly some of the more Calvinistic teachings, that we are supposed to actually work, and we're, capitalism is not a bad word, that we want to create wealth rather than beg for wealth, that they have begun a lot of entrepreneurial, capitalistic-based industry, and you can see in some of these uh, that they have actually formed ways. You see this young man with the blue, he's, got, he's collecting a certain thing as he goes around the dump. And they put him on these donkeys and they take them. So they're recycling. One family's doing cardboard. One family's recycling car batteries. Another, and, and they have begun to create, create industry and they've actually got running water, and you can see walls and buildings on this dump as they have had what used to be called the evangelical lift, that when you come to Christ and there's, it lifts you economically and socially in, in, in every way. And this dump, while you and I could not live there, this is a big improvement over what they had had. And it comes back to their gospel teaching. Now, where do they get it? This is the Church of the Rock. This is the church of the Coptic Christians that you may have heard about in more recent years because these are the ones that are being persecuted. Now, this is going to be, I believe in some day, if it is allowed to stand, it is going to be looked at much like the stuff that Michelangelo did and, and some of the great artwork in Europe because you can begin to see the sculpture that is beginning to take place. And there was a man from Poland who was a sculptor who got this vision to go down to this church and began to do a lot of this kind of work. Now you can see that last slide is right there in the bottom and the front. And that these are all lifelike. Now this is, if, if I can... If I've got the right from, uh, what is it, kilometers or whatever to feet and all that, that this is about 15 to 1,800 feet high, this wall. And what this man has done 
is just absolutely stunning that he's gone up on this, and this is their stained glass windows, if you will. And he is sculpting this right out of the side of this mountain. And you can see these various pictures all along that he's first gone up and sanded and cleaned, and then he starts to sculpt in, and then the last phase of it is to paint it and to seal it. And it's in process. And you can see that uh, Jesus walking on the water. It's all biblical stories that he's putting up there. And it's got both the Arabic and also the English languages in these various pictures, if, uh, if you will, of the Bible. Still, it's, it's a work in progress. You can see the scaffolding there. And this is obviously of the crucifixion. I don't know that I've seen anything like this anywhere in the world. So now you can see that this is why it's called the Church of the Rock or the Church of the Cave. It's go, it goes by both. Now this is right at the top of the Christian dump. This seats, and they have 20,000 people that come to this church, this Coptic church. Now why is why is this the holy site? Why did that happen? Well, there's something that was very significant that happened here. And I'm going to show you just a couple pictures as, as we get down closer to it. You can see a lot of the icons and everything. Egypt was a very Christian country in the centuries after Jesus. And centuries later, when the Muslims came in, they gave Christians three options convert, die, or you can buy your religious freedom. There were a few that bought their freedom, a lot converted, and some died. One of the particular times that they were hiding out, this actually was a, a cave at that time that you might envision a small opening into and um, that they, they didn't have, they were hiding, that basically they were trying to hide. Now you see that we have to have our shoes off because of the holy site. Arene, which is our guide here, native Egyptian, is showing us why this is a holy site. This is on the ceiling. This is not a sculpture that was made by that man. When they were in this cave, the ceiling fell, and this is what was left. There was some sort of like an earthquake, something happened, some of the rock fell off the ceiling, and this is what it revealed. Now, was this sculpted by someone before that? It was like this miracle, and so th this became the holy site for the Christians, and this is why the cave, the, 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 the church of the cave came to be. This gives you a sense of what it would be like being down there and seeing out. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a whole lot more similarities than there are differences, but the Coptic would be closer to our Orthodox brothers and sisters. A lot of icons, um, very significant ritual. Um, so it's more orthodox. It would remind some Catholic, uh, so they, you know, they have their priest and they have a, a high liturgy and, and various things like that. Yeah, very similar to that. But they're their, they're their own unique um, denomination, if you will. Any other questions? So you can see the, the, the gentleman in the orange, Misho. Misho is one of the 20-something age group uh, that when we went, we were uh, helping to train them. The pyramids obviously dominate, and you can't go to Egypt without seeing pyramids. This gives you a sense of how high those, each of those stones are in the pyramids. And this was uh, three of our staff guys uh, from CSRM. So just give you a couple of, the, of that. Now this is the church building that we are most um, in relationship with. 
In fact, I, I have hoped for many years that we could get the pastor of this church to come here. This was a Presbyterian church. It's downtown Cairo. raised Catholic, don't know what a Presbyterian is. You probably have joined everybody in the room. Well, I the, Good for you. For the pur purpose of the tape, um, if you couldn't pick it up, that, what's your name? Angela. Angela is saying that, that she was raised and she's coming back to God now after being away for a while and it doesn't really matter to her what particular brand of Christianity it is that she believes that it's, am I saying this right? That she wants all of us to be understanding of each other and she asks, what is a Presbyterian? Terry, were you gonna say something? Go ahead. Um, I actually work for the Presbyterian denomination, which is based in Louisville, Kentucky. And what what we would um, what we hope. So Terry has just said that she works for the Presbyterian denomination, and so she is now going to explain a little bit about Presbyterians. Presbyterians come to God because of God's grace. And God's grace is a gift that is freely given and was given when he gave his son to us. That God so loved the world that he gave his son that we would then have eternal life. And so the grace of God comes to us and our response to God's grace is one of gratitude. And so everything in our life is to thank God for the grace. And the way that Presbyterians believe and how we show our gratitude for, for God and that grace is through our generosity, our generosity toward God and our generosity toward our brothers and our neighbors, who is the world. And so we would say that there are two commandments that God, Jesus was asked, well, what commandment is the best commandment or the greatest commandment? And his answer is, let me tell you this commandment, love God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind. And the second is like the first, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Upon these commandments rest all of the law of the prophets. And so that in a tiny Sunday school three minutes is who Presbyterians are, are striving to accept the grace of God and pass it on through our love and our generosity. And Presbyterians are part of the Protestant uh, persuasion that came out of the Reformation, and there's a lot of solas. Sola Scriptura, meaning that the Bible alone is our authority. This is where we would have some differences with some others. Sola Fide, meaning by faith alone. We come to Christ by faith alone. And there's some other solas, but the, those are some of the distinguishing parts of Presbyterianism. That, that we believe that Scripture is our final authority, not anything else, not anybody else, and that we come to Christ by faith. There's no works that we can do to come to faith, come to Christ. It's by faith alone. So those are a couple of things. And we would say it's a reformed theology, that we are being reformed, that we were reformed by God, but we're always being reformed by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is, is helping us every single day to be transformed in the likeness of Jesus. Yeah, you see, I've, I've been to those churches where they feel like, um, like the Virgin Mary is not an important person. And I feel like, because I'm a Catholic, because I was raised Catholic, that the Virgin Mary was a very important person because God doesn't just pick anybody. In fact, we'll say, we'll say that not only Mary, but Joseph. And Joseph. That, that 
God chose this wonderful woman and this wonderful man, even though he wasn't the biological father, he was the adoptive father, and he trusted his son to these two very special people. And I've also been to places that don't believe in the Holy Spirit. And I believe that there is a Holy Spirit that comes and touches us and helps us to feel the way that we need to reach out to people. That's what that's what our softness is. That's what that's the Holy Spirit touching you to tell you to love everybody and empowering us to do it. Thank you, Angela. This church that you see the steeple, here's the story behind it. This is right downtown Cairo, and if you've ever been there, anybody been there? And there's a, there's a big circle right downtown that you kind of drive around. And the mayor of the city approves everything that goes on down there. And of course, they want to make that a, a very beautiful place for people to come and see their beautiful city. And then one day, he's sitting in his office, and he sees this church steeple going up that everybody can see from this circle, all these tourists from around the world. And he said, what's going on there? Now, his associate, his right-hand man, so to speak, is a member of this church. And he knew that this man would never sign a paper for that to be built, knowingly. And serendipitously, when he was drunk one day, he slid it under him and he signed it. And to save face, I'm not, you can't tear it down, you approved it. So what he did was he approved the other buildings that you see behind it that he said, we need to build other buildings in front of it so you can't see it from that circle. But this church, and here's a couple of, another of our our 20-somethings that we were working with is probably the most amazing church that I've ever been in. And I happened to be able to worship there on Pentecost Sunday. What's that? Uh, Yeah, you'll get a sense of that. And this, on Pentecost Sunday, they translated into 18 different languages that day. Everything was in Arabic up front, but then it was broadcast in all these different languages. And so you can see that this is a very significant church, and what they're doing is very, very significant there. They have nearly 10,000 members of their church. It's the largest evangelical church in the Middle East. Now, the reason that we were there is because we had been asked to come in. There was about a dozen of us from around the world that were asked to come in to help write manuals, training manuals, for churches that are in communist countries or highly Muslim countries or countries where the gospel is not welcomed. And we were to write this manual to help churches know how to do the kind of things that we do using sports and recreation. And they took us out to a place that's called the Wadi, W-A-D-I. Wadi is an underground source of water. Now, the history of this place that I'm going to show you is that this is where the desert fathers were. The Desert Fathers was the first monastic approach to Christianity that we are aware of. And they went out, and today, on fairly good roads, it took us two hours to get there. Back then, it was a couple days' worth of camel to get there, and it is in the middle of the desert. We drove for over an hour and saw nothing but sand, nothing. And here is this water source. And th- this is a, a resort that is, would rival almost anything we have here. It's better than Wakanda. It's better than almost anything. And I don't want to disparage Wakanda. That's not a negative about Wakanda. I mean, this is just a, a highlight of how good this place is. And they have built it out there, and they have reclaimed the land that once was Christian. Because they said, God is redeeming. God is reforming. God is doing a, a, a work. And so all of these buildings that you see have been created to give a, com, a, communicate the gospel. Excellence. Wonderful. Love. And because they do so much with sport, 
This is one of the premier sporting camps, if you will, in not only the country, but you can go many places in America and not have the kind of quality of, of facilities that they have. Now, here's one of the buildings. This is the hotel that they're building, and they're going to leave it unfinished so they don't have to pay taxes. Yeah, you get a sense of how green it is. You can't understand that until you've seen an hour's worth of sand and all that, that, that is going on here. And this gentleman at the end in the white, Ishmael, was Ethiopian. He came from Ethiopia. He had been incarcerated by the Muslims in Ethiopia. And he had been... Uh, what's the word? He had been forced to serve in the military to fight against Christians and others. And he survived decades of this, came out as this on-fire believer for Jesus. And we were sitting down by the pool this day, and there was a gentleman there who used to be a Navy SEAL. And I stayed close to him the entire time. And he, he had a BlackBerry before people knew what Blackberries were, and it wasn't a fruit, it was an electronic device. And he just, we were there when, if you remember, Zakawi had been assassinated. He was like the number two um, Al-Qaeda guy in the world. And he, he leans over to me and he whispers to me, Zakawi was just assassinated. Well, Ishmael was like, What? And as only a man from his culture could do, stood up and began to dance this jig. Zakawi is dead. Zakawi is dead. And he's going all around that pool just shouting at the top of his lungs. And the rest of us are just saying, I'm staying close to this Navy SEAL because he's going to know how to get us out of here. He was an evil man. He deserved to die. I mean, the passion for what he has seen came out right there at that pool. I could tell you stories about this Navy SEAL uh, that would really, uh, un unbelievable circumstances that he was rescuing people around the world. But that's another story. This is the pastor. Kasser al-Dabara is the name of the church. His name is Pastor Sama, Sama Maris. And Sama and his wife were both surgeons, very lucrative, very lucrative financially, and influential positions and they felt led to take this church and give up all that they had to lead this church now there we are in the room and we're talking about this manual that we're supposed to be writing and uh, this is Safa uh, one of his secretaries and, and Steve and Richard and Richard is from Uganda Steve is from another foreign country we call Indiana. And uh, we, we have this wonderful, yeah. This is in Cairo. That's the one that I showed to the steeple and that owns this property. They own this, this resort. Yes, thank you. And this, you have to understand a couple things. That, that hotel that I showed you, they had us come in, and they treated us like tourists for three days, which we didn't mind. We got, to see the, we got to see the pyramids. We got to go see the museums and all that. But they did that purposely. And then the day that we were to go out to the wadi, they asked us to walk out into the lobby, hug each other, say our goodbyes to each other, and then leave two by two by foot. And they ask us to take a circuitous route to the church and stop in a couple of bazaars, stores. And they said, pay attention. If you see the same people in all three or four of the bazaars that you stop at, we need to know who they are. Because that means you're being followed. We got there to the church. Three hours later, we load up in the in the bus to take us out to, this, to the wadi. And they didn't share anything with us. But what we came to recognize was that they waited three hours because somebody had been followed. And 
they know how to exist in this society. Um, no, it's not so much hidden as it is that they are just cautious. Oh, that hate these people, yes. No, they can worship at this church. They can, they can worship, good question, they can worship at the church, and they have all the legal sanctions, but they are not allowed to what they call proselytize. They are not allowed to talk about their faith with anybody. They can't do that. They go to prison or worse if they do that. And so this is why the strategies that we were helping them with is so profound. Now, if somebody asks them the question, then they can respond. But they cannot initiate. They cannot actively go out and proselytize. So that's what made what we were doing so important. How, how, could, how can they do what they need to do? So we get on this bus, and now we're out there. And on a second day, this realization begins to dawn on us, particularly those of us from the West. We do all these sporting things so we can have an, a, an opportunity to, to talk verbally about Jesus. But if that's illegal for you, how do we do it? And, and well, the day before that, we had another impasse. We'd, we'd, everybody there, we, just, we were just at loggerheads about something. That night, I had a dream. That next morning, I got up, to, and Pastor saw me. I said, Pastor, last night I had a dream. He said, of course you did. And I'm like, he says, have you not read your Old Testament? Uh, well, yeah. You're in Egypt. This is the land of dreams. You tell me your dream and I will be Joseph. Remember, Joseph is the one that interpreted all the dreams. I told him my dream, and it was an answer to our, our, our loggerheads. I can't even remember what it was now. But the dream was the answer. So then the next day, we've come to this realization you can't talk about Jesus unless they talk to you and ask you, we're doing all this so you can go talk to people. We, we don't get it. Sama comes over to me and, and says, oh, you will understand this. I said, Pastor Sama, I said, I, I don't understand anything. And he, he said, 90% of people that come to faith come to faith in this way in our city, in our country, in our culture. And that is that we train our people to go play soccer and basketball and be engaged with them on daily activities. And they find out that we're Christians be, because we go to church. And usually it's okay with a common Egyptian. Okay, but still, how do you get this word? Well... Since we're not allowed to talk to them about Jesus, we pray that Jesus will speak to them in their dreams. And they come up to us a year or three or four later and say, Jesus spoke to me in my dream last night. Can you tell me what it means? Now, you, are you sure you want me to tell you because I, I don't want you to think that I'm proselytizing you. Yes, I need to know. And this is how 90% of the people. And so you see Bossom and uh, Richard and uh, Misho's over there and George is from Portugal. And so this was the group that we were, we were writing this manual when we were there. So I, I, give you, I give you that story to help you understand a little bit about what's going on in that culture. We have, we have just a few, pardon me?
I was going to, there's also a church I wanted to share with you about in Wales, but we're kind of out of time. I've been too long-winded, but I want to take a couple questions. So, There's no doubt that they, our government would have taxed those buildings somehow. Well, most of the pictures that I showed you were uh, Christian people, which is a little different. And uh, the Christians are doing better than a lot of others there. Egypt is not like a lot of the countries, although I was unprepared for the poverty that I saw. And I, I didn't include a lot of the pictures of others that would be more emaciated or what have you. How does it compare to India? I've not been to India. So I, so I, I, I don't know. I can't, I can't give my own personal judgment. But I was, I was unprepared for how how much like a third world country Egypt was. I had it always as more of a second level country or maybe even first, but the poverty was just unbelievable. I'd never had so many people pawing at me. And, and, and even the camel, you know, you got the camel ride at the pyramids and the camel drivers, think about a horse wrangler here, that's what they were like. And they were, hi-ho silver, away! And they had learned these phrases, including... Baby, very sick. Baby, very sick. And when you tried to engage them in English, they couldn't. They, they just learned enough, and, and that's, they, were, they were destitutely poor. Yeah. Do you mind if I add to what you're going to say? Yeah. Terry's going to add a little bit. The Presbyterian denomination has several missionaries that are working in Cairo, and we cannot have any web presence because people search the web looking for words like mission or missionary or Christian. So they're all quote unquote silent. We can print um, paper and let people know to pray for them and what they're doing. But the amazing thing about what's happening now in Egypt, especially with the Presbyterian denomination, is God has opened this window where um, the government has given the Presbyterians 12 lots on which to build churches because the reality is 70% of the people in Egypt do not have access to a church building. It's against the law in Egypt to meet in houses because of the proselytizing, but the government has said to us, the Presbyterians, we need you to build churches because we want you to help us fight the Muslim Brotherhood. And so we, thank God, just received a gift of a million dollars from a very generous Presbyterian in Florida who wants to help us with building the churches and with um, helping to train people to come to the seminary in Cairo to go out and learn how to be open to um, helping people understand who Christ is in their lives and to be able to be part of the church. So um, you do, but it, and I, when I talked to Pastor Sama in, in length about this, I, I said, I, I'm very concerned about all this. And he said, as long as Mubarak remains in control, we will be allowed to operate. And the reason that we are allowed to operate is because we are the only group in Egypt that is effectively dealing with the addiction issues of alcohol and drugs. They take these people out to that wadi and they're actually seeing recovery in this area. They're also bringing economics. You can see what they've built and what they're doing. And they're one of the very few groups that are actually bringing financial assets into the country. And so for these kinds of reasons, they were willing, and Terry is talking about this again in another way, because th there's a lot now with the Muslim Brotherhood that is more recent than when I was there. And these are some of the reasons. But he said, if Mubarak is ever deposed, we do not know what will happen. And that is what's some of the more recent things. When you have seen these actual murders and burnings of churches and stuff more recently has happened since Mubarak was deposed. And I can't tell you, I don't think I can effectively communicate to you what an unbelievable honor I felt it was to be able to sit with about 70 20-somethings, 20 20-year-olds 20 that were begging to be trained 
to be giving this material to know how to go out into the Middle East. And that church has planted over 200 churches in the Middle East. That church alone. And these people are literally laying their lives on the ground, just saying, here I am, Lord. They're laying them on a line, and, and I'm sometimes a little embarrassed to talk about Jesus. And so I felt this unbelievable honor, but I also felt this weight. Am I sending these people to their physical, earthly death because of what they're willing to do? And so far, none that I know of that, I've, that I was part of that training have lost their lives, but many of them have been persecuted. And so it's pretty topsy-turvy right now over there. Well, our time has come to an end. Those of you that may have come in a little later, next week, Jonathan Detwaller, who's our international guy with CSRM, will be here. He's going to be sharing some great, great stories about the church around the world that I really uh, would encourage you to come back and listen to. So thanks for having me back, and um, God bless you.